welcome to Mindfulness of Doom, a weekly podcast about life, peaceful living, and existential dread. You're not lost. Everyone's faking it, and the purpose of life is, um, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 7 of the Mindfulness of Doom podcast. If you are listening for the first time, this is a podcast about mindfulness that happens to be put in the context of our inevitable demise. Mindfulness of doom is not as dark as it sounds, however. We invite you not to be afraid of what you're about to hear. Yes, that's right. Mindfulness of doom is not just for the doom and gloom types. We're actually here to help support you in your quest to live a more fulfilling and happy, well-put-together life. So we actually have some announcements to take care of. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Brian and I are going to be speaking to the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Miami on December 3rd at 11 a.m. We're going to be talking about turning fear into fascination. And if you'd like to check us out there, feel free to come and join the show. Their website is uumiami.org. That's right. And another announcement, Mindfulness of Doom is now on Patreon. And in the last week, we got our first two patrons and we smashed our first goal of having somebody buy us a cup of coffee. Like for real? We've offic- like, like for real? For real. Like, like for, for real, real, for real? real? Yes. We have smashed the goal, and we now have very loyal and dedicated fans supporting the podcast on a monthly basis, and we are so thrilled. Thank you so much to Guido Porto and Brajesh Singh for being our first supporters. We look forward to producing more great content for you, and eventually our goals on Patreon are going to lead more toward helping us support an educational platform where we'll be teaching mindfulness and several other real life skills that aren't currently taught in our primary education system. Now, I, I got to say that I had a Gong Fu tea ceremony service with Guido last week, and it was phenomenal. That man, he sweet talked to me so much. I, I, I think I'm in love. Yes. And uh, Mr. Brajesh is a very good friend of mine, and he actually gave me one of my best flutes. He gave me a bansuri that came directly from India that his father brought back for him, and it has the sweetest sound. And Brajesh, just to, to share a little bit of love with you, thank you so much for uh, sharing all of your uh, romantic advice as well as your wisdom when it comes to processing emotions and self-healing the body. Brajesh is becoming somewhat of an expert in mindfulness of emotions. Yes, every time I see Brajesh, you know what he does? He asks me about my back. Because he and I both share uh, common ground in uh, painful back injuries. And uh, he, he's, he's so mindful and caring and thoughtful. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that he's alive and that he exists. And the, our, our Patreon supporters mean the world to us. And if you happen to become a patron and support the show, we will say the sweetest things about you. And you can do that at patreon.com slash mindfulness of doom. Brian... Since you mentioned that you play the flute, if you become a Patreon supporter, that may very well be a a perk that you get in the future is you might actually get to hear a little bit of, of Brian's uh, sensual flute music. Yes, Corey and I have a thing here at Mindfulness of Doom where we commit each other to doing other things without asking for permission first. And it tends to work out quite well because it pushes us forward into realms of experience that we otherwise would not have had. You know, speaking of realms of experience that I wasn't really ready to have, did you know that today we had our very first featured article? We have our very first press 
uh, today from Rise News. Yeah, Rise News, which has, I think, about 40,000 plus followers on Facebook. Serious? Wrote a featured article. Yeah, serious. I, I, I don't think I mentioned that part. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Rise News wrote an article about us and the podcast and kind of how we got started and what the purpose is. So if you're listening now and you're not quite sure what you're listening to, you can either keep listening or you can hit pause and go find the article. We posted it onto our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash mindfuldoom. And uh, you can read that article and learn a little bit more about Corey and me. Wait, wait a minute, uh, wait a minute. I'm on their site right now. The, yeah. The, the title of, I mean, I'm very flattered that we get any press at all. And thank you, Rise News, for, for hosting us there. But, oh, my goodness, this Barry University professor and his martial artist friend want you to die? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my goodness, Brian. I've been relegated to the substatus of martial artist friend. Yeah, what, you didn't know that you were my sidekick? I thought we talked about no! this. No! <laughs> okay, so uh, this, this article is actually quite flattering, but there's, there's one thing I, I have to bring up here. Uh, when they talk about me, because, you know, I'm full of ego and I'm trying to, you know, experience ego death, but at the moment, they, there was a writing about me here that says that I teach self-defense to adults and anti-bullying prevention to children which is true. However, anti-bullying prevention almost sounds like I'm teaching kids to bully people who have been trained in anti-bullying prevention. Well, look, man, the way that I see it is if you're going to bully somebody, at least do it right. Okay. So I'm glad that you're there to teach children everywhere how to bully appropriately. Yes, yes. Well, that's, that is my goal is to uh, – I, I do get paid for mild child abuse. Uh, mostly parents will give me money to hit their kids. And uh, in the best possible way, you know, I'm wearing a bunch of armor and the kids mostly beat me up. But, but it's actually quite a lot of fun when you're teaching kids uh, kidnapping prevention, because unlike in a martial arts class where they're, you know, punching a, a fake wooden board or, you know, getting that that camouflage belt. When you're doing real self-defense, kids who are 11 and 12 or even seven, as young as seven or eight years old, they're really getting to beat up a real adult. And it's it's a lot of fun for me. But I think it's even more fun for the kids. Yeah, it's nice to have the immediate feedback of the flesh being pushed in by your fist and the grunts that ensue as a result. (laughs) Did you know, Brian, that there has been a secret person lying in wait listening to us yammer on this whole time? I was aware of that, yes. As I'm looking at our feeds over here on Zencaster, I'm noticing that we have an extra mic feed. uh, And the, the name listed is one... William Colachico. Is that? Uh, Professor William Colachico. Of, of Valencia State College fame? Yes. Professor William Colachico, who teaches the Intro to Religion class over at Valencia State College, who gave us the privilege of guest professoring in his classes for episode four, yeah. has come back to share a little bit about his very secretive spiritual life that he doesn't even share with his students. Will, welcome back to the show, man. How have you been? Greetings. It is I, <laughs> Professor William. <laughs> well, uh, as, as long-term listeners of the pod will realize that uh, Will was our very first guest. He has a record in Mindfulness of Doom. And what are those records, Corey? What are the awards that William has achieved? Well, as of today, he has earned two more records. He was the first guest on Mindfulness of Doom, and he is also the first repeat guest on the show. And he has also earned the title of first remote guest. He's recording from, uh, where are you recording from, Will? Orlando. In addition to being 
a, a very hotly rated teacher on RateMyProfessor.com. He is. Oh my also, God! It's sizzling the things that the students say about ooh. you. It's a uh, it's a little bit sensational. You've got a YouTube channel, don't you? Indeed, I am the professor of Crypto Community College, a new YouTube channel about cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin and Ethereum that is going to change the world. If you're interested in cryptocurrency, feel free to check out Crypto Community College on YouTube. Before we get to Will and his super secretive monastic lifestyle from days of yore, uh, Corey, I've got a question for you, man. Where's your head at? You know, my head's actually been pretty full lately. Uh, I, I have started something a little bit unique. I've been a I've been a martial arts practitioner for 25 years, and uh, there's a lot of places out there that do the brick and mortar martial arts school where they have like that sign that says body, spirit, mind. And then you go in and they only study the body, like they only do the forms and the kicks and the punches, but they don't know anything about meditation and they don't know anything about the history of the academics of where it comes from. They might know a little bit, but it's kind of like a giant game of telephone, master to student, master to student, master to student. People start making stuff up along the way. And not to say that all martial arts schools do this, but I wanted to try something different. I wanted to start something a little more in depth for instead of trying to get a hundred students and trying to get a, you know, fill up as many classes as I could during the week, I decided I would start an apprenticeship program where I could teach a more holistic teaching style. And I wanted to teach the philosophy as well as the academic history, uh, as well as language and cultural learning, in addition to the martial arts, in addition to the self-defense and in addition to the med- meditation. I'm basically like the Mr. Miyagi of South Florida. And uh, I have my very first apprentice. He is here with us in the studio. His name is Yutaka Inoue, straight from Japan. Uh, he is more than I could have ever hoped for. And it's like blowing my mind that I'm actually getting this dream project of mind off the ground. He's 21 years old. He's from Chiba, Japan. He was studying English in, in Canada. And uh, he met you, Brian, and uh, you introduced him to me. And I have to thank you very much for that because he is more than I could have ever hoped for. He's inquisitive and thoughtful. Uh, He's a dedicated student. uh, And I'm just more than thrilled to have him here with us. And I'm sure he's blushing like crazy in the other room. But uh, Yutaka, thank you so much for coming to study with me. And I hope that your training proceeds swimmingly. Brian, where's your head at? This morning, I woke up and I was all bright and tailed and bushy eyed, whatever that means. And I was ready to start my day. And I walk out into the living room and we have a little video game station with a small TV and uh, you know, GameCube and a Super Nintendo. And, and I look down at the game station and continuing the dipstick saga, uh, for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time, I have this cat. His name is Dipstick. Uh, yes, that's actually his name. Dipstick threw up. Dipstick is a recurring character on Mindfulness of Doom. Dipstick, welcome back to the show. Yes, uh, Dipstick threw up all over my GameCube controllers, which I've had now for maybe, God, it feels like 15 years. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a and, minute, wait a minute. You're telling me the last time you told a story about Dipstick, it was fluids coming out of the other end of your cat. Yeah. And now they're, they're coming out all over your uh, gaming equipment. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. So the cat, the cat vomited a hairball and a bunch of other fluids all over my GameCube controllers, right. and it got all up in the buttons and stuff, and uh, it, including underneath, you know, that that part where the rubber thing on your joystick falls off when you play too much, and it, it was all sticky and gooey. And it, anyway, I 
I, I got the spray bottle and the paper towels and I thoroughly began cleaning. And I, I realized, speaking of, of Mr. Miyagi, uh, I was doing the wax on, wax off and mindfully cleaning every one of my controllers and uh, checking my frustration and just feeling all of the the emotions that would come up in the body about what had happened and how I have to now spend my time doing this. And I, it occurred to me this morning that my cat is my greatest teacher. That sounds like a book title. Oh my God. <laughs> or a blog. We're going uh, to do that. You know, uh, Brian, I, I'm actually unsympathetic to your cause here. I mean, I'm sorry that you had to uh, get cat vomit all over your GameCube controller, but since you are currently borrowing my Super Nintendo, I am very glad to hear that he didn't vomit all over my gaming system. So am I. <laughs> it's, it's no fun to have to answer to a martial arts instructor in that way. <laughs> yes, well, all right, man. So uh, I, I got some bad news for you, Brian. What's that? We're all going to die, man. Ugh. Yeah. Again? Yeah. It's unfortunate, so we should really cut the small talk and get to the important things in life. You know, you know you're right. Uh, we do this thing where we get distracted, all of us actually, not just us as the host, but we all get distracted and we start going down these rabbit holes of, yeah, let me talk about this, let me try this thing, let me do this thing, and we lose track of what's really important in life, and that's where mindfulness comes in. So we're using mindfulness to keep ourselves on course, pursuing our passions, doing the things that we love, and staying focused. To help us stay focused, we have Professor William Colochico here on the episode to talk about the varying degrees of monkhood. I started studying meditation and practicing it probably nine years ago, I think. But since then, I've traveled all around the world and gone to different monasteries from mainly different Buddhist lineages. And to make a long story short, I ended up becoming a monk in the Thai Theravada tradition on two different occasions. The first time for about a month and the second time for about a hundred days. You're a double monk. Yep, I'm double monking it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm no longer a monk at this time. but In the Theravada tradition, you can become a monk and then not be a monk and then become a monk again. So it's not, it's not a lifelong commitment. Correct. Yeah. This is one of the unique things. Cause I think when a lot of people think about becoming a monk, they, you know, think that it's for life until you die. And, but, uh, that's one of the things that's kind of unique about the Theravada tradition, at least in Thailand is that you can temporarily become a monk. As I understand it, the colloquial term is to say that you wear the robes and then when you disrobe, you're no longer a monk. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. The general world has this, these conceptions about, what monks are and how they live. And, you know, one of the most common things that people see, it's, it's all outside appearances. You know, we wear these robes and uh, we shave our heads. But what exactly was that like for you, Will? And, and to what extent did you undergo those rituals? And, uh, and what are the purposes of them? I started going to this Thai Theravada temple. And over the years, I just got to know the monks and the people in the community and so they all got to know me and I would, you know, gradually participated more and more in their quote unquote rituals or whatever. And so over time, they actually invited me to become a monk and said, you know, anytime you want, you can become a monk, um, knowing that it could be temporarily as well. So it did, did they try to hook you in by giving you all the benefits by saying you get to shave your head? <laughs> 
You get to wear orange robes. <laughs> well, that, that part is kind of obvious. <laughs> yes, but I mean, you got to hook them in somehow, right? right yeah. yeah, like what really drove you over the fence into monkhood? Actually, my love of meditation and the practice. And I actually, I actually love Buddhism, too. So it all actually came very naturally to me. And it, this may sound funny, and I'll go ahead and say this now, you know, when, when you see it, like if you were to see me doing that or whatever, it, it seems religious because like you said, there's, there's rituals involved and ceremonies and stuff like that. But I actually don't consider myself a religious person. And that may sound contradictory, but I'm kind of one of those people that thinks of myself as more spiritual than religious so to speak. So it's interesting that you say that, Will, because when we were studying in grad school uh, about uh, Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, uh, one of the things that we understood is that when Buddhism spread out of India, when it encountered different cultures, it would generally uh, assume the local deities and gods of those cultures. It would not shun them. It would not say, oh, you can't be your own religion anymore. They would basically say, oh, you could still be your own religion and you're Buddhist too. It allowed it to kind of... Uh, I wouldn't say seamlessly, but it certainly like had a much easier time spreading than some other major world religions that had some issues getting people to adopt it. But once it's kind of crossed the ocean and come to the West, the West got it from you know popular philosophers like uh, Alan Watts or Bertrand Russell, and uh, it was kind of seen as more of a philosophy than a religion because it was coming from the more academic side. Whereas in Asia, it's much more of a religious structure because they, um, you, you actually get to see the worshiping, you actually get to see the ceremonies, the rituals, uh, much more over there. So in the West, we engage. it seems like we engage with it much more um, academically and why so many people here in the West kind of see it as like being a non-religious philosophy. Everybody has a first day when they try out something new. And the first day tends to be fairly awkward or unfamiliar or unusual. Did you encounter anything like that when you were first becoming a monk? No, because like I said, I, I'd already kind of become part of that community and I had actually stayed at the temple overnight and acclimated myself to it gradually. And, and I had done retreats at other temples and whatnot. So I think and now that you're asking me about it, I think one of the most awkward things probably was getting used to wearing the robes because the <laughs> the, the the Theravada style of wearing robes is there's there's kind of an underskirt type of thing, which is actually just one piece of cloth and there's a little sash, which those two things go under one giant piece of cloth that you kind of fold and throw over your shoulder. So learning how to wear that was probably the most awkward thing at first. I remember yeah. you telling me a story when you first became a monk and how some dude just came up to you and was like, hey, give me spiritual advice. Oh, man. Yeah, it was even more than that. So I, I, won't, I won't really be too specific, but that's one of the things. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll go ahead and say that I, I wasn't even ready for that because obviously when I was a monk, that was what, six, five or six years ago now? And so I didn't really consider that before I became a monk that a lot of people have this appeal to authority. So several people came to me just confiding in me really personal things and asking me advice, um, which kind of took me aback. So that was one thing that was one thing that kind of hit me that I had to get used to. Yeah. 
Do you uh, have to get used to shaving your head? A little bit, yeah. I mean, you've shaved your head before too, so I think the weirdest thing about it is like how it feels when you first shave it, and then when it starts to grow out, you're like patting yourself on the head. You're like, oh, this is this is strange. Yeah, but I, I was able to keep my eyebrows though. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Will, did you actually shave your eyebrows as yeah, well Yeah, but I loved head? it because I got these big, bushy-ass eyebrows that I always have to get <laughs> waxed and, like, pluck and stuff. So I was just down to shave the whole damn thing off. Like, get this unibrow away from me. <laughs> yeah. Man, it, it's almost like, uh, you know, I, I could put this in the context of my own experience. I went on a Vipassana course over the summer, and, and to some extent it involved a monastic living. There are these five precepts that you take on, including... Uh, you know, you, you agree not to kill anything. There's no sexual misconduct. And we can get into all of those in a moment. But I, I remember it was it was a 10-day course and you're there waking up at four in the morning and meditating all day and, and eating two meals a day. And uh, I didn't have to shave anything. And and a lot of secular folk come to the, the Vipassana courses to have that experience. And, you know, I'm thinking about the varying degrees of monkhood that one can undergo and, you know, for me, it was like shave nothing. For Corey, when he was doing his wooden fish excursion out in China, he shaved his head. And then for you, Will, you shaved your head and your eyebrows. And I'm wondering if it's kind of like having a, a white belt, yellow belt, black belt kind of thing in terms of, of monkhood. How much you have yeah. to shave. Yeah, like how, how monk are you willing to go? <laughs> yeah, Will, how much do they make you shave? That's funny. Well, it was, it was, it was all above the neck. But yeah. uh, oh, well then. Yeah, I don't want to get rid of that beautiful <laughs> carpet of, uh, of chest hair. Stop while you're ahead. <laughs> my, my Austin Powers uh, chest. Yeah. Um, yeah. When when I was in uh, China, I guess I was I spent about three or four months in total. It was a monastic living program. So the first time I went as a student, and the second time I went back as a staff and teacher. And yeah, there is a, a shaving, a head shaving thing, but it's all voluntary. Like there was like 65 students in the program, um, but they, they don't have to shave your head, but you can. In the first year we did it, they didn't allow women to do it because in China, women shaving their heads is, is much more serious than it is in the States. It's like it's a total renunci renunciation of uh, your desire to be attractive to get rid of your luscious hair that, that is, you know, used as a, um, a as an appeal. And uh, so they didn't want women to do it at first because they were afraid it was going to offend the nuns. But the, the, the second year I went back, it was two years later, we ended up being in the largest nunnery in China with over a thousand nuns training there. And so they allowed us, they allowed all the women to shave their heads. And so they had all these you know, 65 students and they had one monk who was shaving heads that day. And so there was this huge long line and they were like, oh, has anyone shaved heads before? And I was like, yeah, I, I have, because I used to shave my own head. So it was me and this monk and uh, maybe one of the other teachers were shaving heads and like a lot of people were in the line for the monk and about half the men shaved their heads and about a third of the women decided to. But after they watched the monk just do this really cursory job of shaving heads and they saw me being like super delicate and like really thorough with it, all the women shifted from the monk's line into my line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian, you, you brought up that you had gone to a Vipassana retreat and I, I'd like to say for all the people listening, obviously they're already into this type of thing or, getting, or interested in getting in it or considering it. 
I would highly recommend those Vipassana retreats if you already have some experience with meditation, because um, those those Goenka retreats or the Vipassana retreats are are oftentimes e- even more intense than being a monk. I have to say, because when I was a monk, it was mm. I had a lot of free time, so so I developed in my practice a lot, and I I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. But I, I've also done those Vipassana retreats, and I think that they're great. Yeah, I found that it was a very rigorous schedule of meditating for about 12 hours a day. And, uh, you know, it would be the temptation of, you know, wanting to go back to your room and fall asleep in the middle of the day, which I did once or twice, admittedly. Uh, And it was very tough. But one of the things that came out of that was I cured my back pain. I had this incredibly tight back and um, I used to throw out my back frequently and I thought that certain corrective exercises would do it, but it turns out that the body scanning exercise of the actual Vipassana meditation was what cleared up a lot of the knots and, and pinched nerves that I had yeah, going on. Yeah, it helps on. with pain. I've noticed that too. Yeah, it really does. Actually, the first three days of it are incredibly painful because you're sitting still and trying not to move, but once the body becomes accustomed to the position, I can now sit for hours without moving and it doesn't bother me whatsoever. It's amazing how going through a little bit of hardship and putting limits on yourself to the point where you're, you want to do things, but you're not allowing yourself to do them can, can make so many other experiences just much more palatable and easy to, to handle because you've gone, you've gone through something more difficult. And I feel like going through these retreats, and, under, and undertaking certain of these what they call precepts are just mm-hmm. really beneficial to just, you know, learning about yourself. Brian, since you did the, the Pasana retreat, what, what are the precepts? What are the rules of those retreats? I think it might be the exact same ones that you guys did because it is based in Buddhism. So no killing, uh, no sexual misconduct is another. Uh, could you remind me of the other three? There are five in total. Yeah, the other uh, is... Uh, no speaking false truths. Yes, no fe- which, no speaking false truths. Which is a bit more encompassing than just saying don't lie, mm-hmm. because you can still mislead people with the truth. Yeah, exaggerations, for example, are right. really being mindful of your speech and what you're conveying with your word. Uh, another one is um, not taking that which is not given to you. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's again more encompassing than just saying don't steal stuff. But it encourages you to be more mindful by saying, like, you can't even take things unless they're offered to you. So, like, if there's, like, a bowl of candy or something, like, you you can't just reach out and take it, even if it's obvious that it could be taken and has to be, like, given to you. There was another precept that had to do with modesty, and it was specifically about no sleeping in high beds or high luxurious beds, as they would say. And and, uh, when you get to the Vipassana center... they really hold true to that. When Vipassana was traveling around India and it was first beginning when um, when Goenka was running the courses, he would have everybody in one large tent throughout the day and then they would fall asleep on the ground in the evenings. Now it's not that way. You actually go to a retreat center and, and the one that I was at up in Georgia they had accommodations with bunk beds and they were very creaky, rudimentary bunk beds with very thin, they were like dorm room mattresses. So wouldn't bunk beds seem to break that rule though, of it being like high beds? Like, Will, what is the, what is the monastic take on the, why the luxurious and high beds and chairs? What is it, that about? It more had to do with the thickness of the mattress. 
like making yourself too comfortable could encourage complacency. Yeah, I think I yeah, I think that's what it is. It's just like avoiding overindulgence, you know, and, and laying in a freaking comfort mattress or whatever it is. Yeah, and it, it was the point where I, I wasn't looking forward to going to bed by day four. In fact, the meditation was so restorative that I would sleep maybe two or three hours a night and I would feel incredibly refreshed. And it didn't matter what the bed felt like. In fact, some nights I would lay in bed for several hours and my mind would be clear and I would just be at peace with myself. And that was something that uh, is very difficult to replicate in my soft, cushy bed at home. When I was in the Woodenfish program, uh, the first monastery we stayed at, we each time I went, we sh- we moved around. We were in a few different ones, but the first one we stayed in for the first two weeks was uh, like it was basically like sleeping on a pallet of two by fours with a sheet thrown over it. Like it was pretty uncomfortable. But the good news was was that my back never felt better. <laughs> like my shoulder and my hip were killing me, but uh, my back pain was was relatively minimal during that trip because. Uh, when you sleep in a hard bed, like you actually get a straight back and just yeah. it's wonderful. We started this conversation between me and uh, one of the other staff members on the on the trip with us, Kim, who uh, is beautiful and amazing and phenomenal. And uh, if Kim, if you are listening, good on you, because uh, she said this thing to me once. So we were joking about being in the monastery and I was like, man, yeah, living on these hard beds, it, it's great. I just want a soft woman. And she's like, I want the opposite. I want a hard man and a soft bed. <laughs> no, no, no sexual contact of any kind while you're in the monastery life. This brings us to the, the strictness of the precepts. Does it vary from monastery to monastery or from tradition to tradition? And are there people who take on monkhood and regularly or accidentally break the precepts I imagine it would be very difficult coming from a very secular life and saying, okay, I'm going to live in a monastery. Can I follow these rules? What are some of the things that come up around that? Well, I'd like to comment on what Corey, the story Corey just told, which relates to how I think it gets built up in people's minds when they hear that, you know, no sexual contact and only eating one or two meals a day. Um, But when you actually do it, it's not that bad you know, or only sleeping for five hours a night or, or whatever the whatever the precept or the schedule of the monastery or retreat that you're staying in. Once I got used to it, I started to look forward to it. For example, with the limited eating thing. So when I, nine years ago, when I first started going to retreats and stuff, you know, there was only one and a half meals a day and it was, oh, it's going to be so hard, blah, 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 blah. But over time, now when I do it, I go to monasteries when they only eat one meal a day, and I love it. It's just so simple, and I don't have to worry about finding food and eating three meals. It's it's great. I love it. You don't have to find it. We don't have to worry about foraging anymore. <laughs> yeah. Not to worry about hunting yeah. down the saber tooth. <laughs> I used to get so frustrated and angry and short-tempered when I got hungry. I didn't even realize it until I was like 22 or 23. I'd go on a big road trip with, actually my ex-girlfriend and I were just talking recently and she and I were both reminiscing over the time we drove through Japan to Hiroshima. And we got there and I, I, I felt fine, but as soon as we got to the hotel and had a problem parking, like I had, we hadn't eaten in six or seven hours and I, I just blew up. I, I couldn't keep my temper. 
And I, I was so frustrated that the temple, or no, I'm sorry, that the, the hotel staff was like not being forthright about where to park. And so I just drove off in a huff and found street parking on my own. And then my girlfriend got really mad at me because uh, I couldn't, because I wasn't keeping my temper. And at the time I thought, man, I just, I get so frustrated and angry so easily when I'm hungry. I really got to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm eating. But then when I went into the monasteries and the very first time that you and I went into a retreat, well, it's only two meals a day. It's breakfast and lunch. There's no eating after noon. And so the idea, at least the way it was explained to me, was the monks live off of the community and they traditionally would beg for food and money for the temple. So if you beg three times a day, you're taking too much from the community. Like you're, you're sitting around meditating all day. You don't need that many calories. Like don't take more than you need. So they would eat breakfast, they would eat lunch, and then there would be no meal for dinner and you would actually get really hungry. But once I started doing that and I actually like having to deal with hunger and not being able to do anything about it, like you could have tea or something, but you couldn't have any solid food. But after doing that, it, it just turned the volume down on all my like uh, hangriness. You know, I, I didn't, I now... I skip meals regularly. I, actually, I skip meals so often that my apprentice, I keep forgetting to feed him <laughs> because of a lack of desire to eat. And like, he'll be like, it'll be like nine or 10 PM. And, and he'll be like, oh, can, can we eat now? And I've forgotten we haven't eaten since breakfast. I'm like, oh crap. Yeah. You're wasting away. Let me eat. Let me feed you. There are some actual health benefits yeah. to skipping meals, by the way. For, for anyone who's ever studied intermittent fasting, it's something that I got into recently. I'm actually, right now I'm nine days into an intermittent fast and a lot of misconceptions about that is like, oh, well, you're just going to be hungry all day and you'll lose weight and all of that. And I found the opposite to be true. I am so happy that I don't have to think about where my food's going to come from three times a day. I'm choosing to eat once a day in the evenings and I still get to do my workouts and I'm putting on major muscle mass and burning fat like crazy and i'm able to focus and concentrate more clearly than i could if i were distracted by thoughts of you know having a lunch break yeah it, it is something that you get used to when you eat three meals a day and then suddenly you go on to retreat and you're only eating two meals a day when it comes time for that third meal you get hungry but an interesting thing about hunger is is it doesn't stay with you until you eat next it comes and it goes in waves and your hunger will come up when it's time to eat. But if you continue to keep that schedule of eating two meals a day, eventually your body gets used to it and stops getting hungry around that third meal. And it only starts getting hungry when it's time to eat. Yeah, I find that to be the case now that I don't even get hungry. I just know, okay, well, it's evening time and I should eat something so that I can keep my energy up. But I'm at the point now where I'm wondering if, you know, if I could skip a meal altogether for the day and then just eat the following day, because uh, I still feel satiated after 24 hours. So, what, I mean, what is the point of of all of these precepts, um, like of these limitations on yourself? Are, are the codes really that strict? In Theravada Buddhism, they try to preserve Buddhism from the time of the Buddha as accurately as possible. So in that sense... I suppose you could maybe label it as more conservative in that way. 
Um, and so they keep the original 227 precepts from the time of the Buddha. 227? Yeah, there's 311 for nuns in the Theravada tradition. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did hear about that. Um, yeah. Which is I, I th- a controversial topic for another day. <laughs> yeah, I think most of the most of the extra ones are about bathing in a river. Like, they're, they're specifically about, like, how to wash your body and stuff. Yeah, so some of them have become irrelevant in that sense. But I respect the fact that they preserve them to keep the tradition. Because in my view, the way that I see it is that once you start to change some, then you have all these debates and it's like, which ones are we going to change? And it can become a slippery slope to where, you know, if you change some of these, then why not change the other ones? So I I can see, I mean, since I'm kind of coming from that tradition, obviously, but um, I can kind of see just, just keeping them all. So the decision is already made, like it's not a debate, you know, but then as you know, maybe you could elaborate on this, Corey, um, in the, in the, Mahayana traditions and Vajrayana. Well, va- let's not even talk about Vajrayana, but yeah, that's <laughs> a Mahayana, whole other can of worms. Yeah, in the Mahayana traditions, they ended up changing some of the precepts, which which were actually necessary in some cases. For example, going for alms round, which you referred to as begging, but um, you know, you can't really go on alms round in Japan, in North China and Korea when it's snowing and freezing cold outside. You know. Well, Japan and China don't have a history of begging. That's not part of their cultural tradition in the monasteries. They they earned money in different ways, particularly right. now. They sell services like funerals and uh, birth um, birth ceremonies, funeral, uh, death ceremonies. Like they, they make their money in other ways, and people come and they make lot, massive donations at uh, uh, New Year's, and they buy fortunes and stuff. And the community supports the monastery in different ways, but in the Theravada traditions, they... They, they do have those traditions of begging. Um, so, like, culturally, they still hang on to those things. All the rules are in place, actually, to enhance mindfulness. So you could think of them as mindfulness precepts. So, you know, it, it may... For people that haven't studied it before or aren't used to it, 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 it may take some time or studying to, to wrap your mind around, or, or practice, the most importantly. But... Um, yeah, they're in place to make you think about every single thing that you're doing. And so it kind of brings that imminent uh, focus into everything that you do, you know? My apprenticeship program is, uh, I, I don't want to say semi-monastic, because uh, it's more like pseudo-monastic. <laughs> I have some, I have the, the, five, the main five precepts, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie no sexual misconduct. And the last one is supposed to be no intoxicants, but uh, Utaka is a, uh, is a smoker and he was smoking 20 cigarettes a day. He's smoking about a pack a day. So when he first, on the first day here, I was explaining the rules to him. And when I got to that one, his face turned white as a sheet. He was, all the color drained out of him when he realized that I was gonna make him quit smoking. And he, he was like, I don't think I can do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to quit. And I was like, okay, we'll tell you what, 20 a day is a lot. So let's change the precept. Instead of saying no, no intoxicants, we're going to change it to no needless intoxicants. Uh, because it's pretty hard to quit smoking cold turkey. And I recognize that. And he goes, okay. And I'm like, how many cigarettes do you think you could limit yourself to a day? 
And he looks at me and I could see the cogs turning behind his eyes. He was like, how, how many can I say without him changing the number? Like, I know he wanted as high as possible and he know he knew that I wanted as low as possible. So he goes, eight. <laughs> and I went, okay, eight. And he goes, damn, I was going to say 10. <laughs> and then I told him it didn't matter what number he said, I was going to make him go lower. <laughs> I think that's debatable anyways, because I think it's, you know, even though that is an addiction, you know, humans can be addicted to all kinds of things, but I don't think that precept is referring to a drug like that because um, coffee and tea don't apply, but those are technically drugs, you know, but they don't, they don't, they don't necessarily cloud your mind in the same way that alcohol and other drugs do. Right. Well, I think, I mean, when it's, it's normally translated as, uh, no intoxicants, but, uh, I think a more modern, um, interpretation is to say that no addictions and you talk, said it the other day at, uh, Brian at your house and, and one of your events at the tea at La Casita, uh, he said that he actually enjoyed having the limit, although he doesn't like having a specific number it does make him think every time he has a cigarette, he stops and goes, do I really need this? And uh, some days he's smoking less than eight cigarettes a day because, you know, one, I'd keep him busy enough not to smoke. And and two, when he does, sometimes he's, he wants to smoke after a meal and then he'll stop and he'll look at his pack of cigarettes. And then I'll, I'll see him like making the decision in his head. And thinking, do I really need this? And it, it causes this mindfulness smoking practice for him. Are there any other instances where uh, monks undergoing the precepts might modify or or bend the rules a little bit to accommodate their desires or to, uh, to sort of reason with the tradition a little bit? Sort of just like, like hey, this is, this is too strict for me, but yet I still want to be a monk. Is, is that something that happens? Oh, definitely. I mean, humans are humans, you know? And um, so I, I have a few comments on that. So like I said, the, the Theravada precepts are extremely strict and there's a debate even within the tradition, like, is milk okay after noon? You know, because they're not supposed to eat after midday. So there's a debate within the tradition can we have milk or not, you know? So it, it gets, they get into minutia like that. Yeah. I remember seeing, you, you told me once that uh, at the at the monastery, they had those big bowls mm-hmm. of candy, hard candies, and you could have a hard candy. Uh, and I remember watching the abbot of the temple come right up to you, pointed at the bowl and told you, <laughs> give me one of those. Well, I don't remember that, but... Uh, Stuff like that happens. Was that because he, um, he could not take what was not given? He had to be very upfront about, just give me that? He, he was being cheeky and funny. And it, was, it wasn't like he was really breaking his precept. But it was like <laughs> he wanted one. And he knew that somebody was standing there that could that could offer him one. And instead of asking for <laughs> it, he just commanded it. Yeah, it, it uh, reminds me of... Um, it reminds me of in Judaism, how on the Sabbath, they're not supposed to do any work, right? Yeah. And so they end up like coming up with these machines and contraptions to like turn on and off lights and <laughs> have like robots in their house. So it's like trying to work, trying to negotiate the precepts. Yeah, I remember our professor, Dr. Katz, had us over for Shabbos lunch one day. 
And then he explained to us that what they will do is they'll make friends with their non-Jewish neighbors. And if they forget to turn on a light, <laughs> they'll call, they'll, they'll go over to their neighbor's house and ask them, will you come over and flip the light switch for me? Yeah, there, there's a whole set of readings and discussions and arguments between the sages of old and, and Judaism. There's a, a whole set of books called the Talmud, which is commentary from academics from centuries ago about what rules we should keep in, in Orthodox Judaism, how we should abide by the commandments, what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath. And it, it sounds a lot like how the precepts in Buddhism are treated sometimes. It's like, well, do, can I have milk afternoon? It's, it reminds me of on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to carry anything. But how do you unlock and lock your house at the end of the day? You have to have a key with you. And so what they do is they tie a key around their waist using a string. And as long as the key is hanging from you, but it's not in a pocket, it's not considered to be carried. So there are all these very inventive ways that it's agreed upon that it's okay to do certain things or not do certain things. It's interesting that um, when you think of lay people that live by such strict precepts, by um, they live almost more monastically than monks do. One of the famous Buddhist sutras is the Vimalakirti Sutra, which uh, the main character Vimalakirti is not a monk. He's a lay person, but uh, he happens to know a great deal about Buddhism. And he, he fakes being sick. Uh, so the Buddha will come check on him. And he has the Buddha keeps sending people to check on him. And he has these philosophical discussions with each one of them. He ends up like being more knowledgeable about the Dharma than any of the people that the Buddha sends all the way up to Avalokitesvara, who's the uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion. He's like uh, the, the, basically the, the Buddha's right-hand man or, or woman because it's, uh, it's gender neutral in, in many, uh, depending on which country you're, you're talking about it from. When the, the precepts kind of get in the way of daily life, like Will once mentioned to me that there were a bunch of wasps around the temple and one of the monks waited until the retreat was over where everyone had, you know, wasn't following the precepts anymore. And they were like, yeah, go take care of the wasp nests. Yeah, but actually that's the point. They're supposed to get in the way. Like the, the precepts are not meant to be convenient because, you know, for, to take that example, like killing other living beings should not be convenient. You, you know, you should stop before you should do, take a life. Yeah, it, it, it exposes you to something that you've never done before to live a little bit more mindfully to stop to have to stop yourself to check how you're living your life and yeah and in that way the precepts definitely do their job they make your life a little bit more difficult but but yeah you're, you're completely right it, it they definitely do make the process of being mindful more more tangible and more immediate and in your face and it sounds like it increases your level of responsibility in life that you can't mindlessly just go about your day and do whatever the heck you feel like. You actually have to be considerate of other living beings or how you treat yourself and your body or the types of inputs you're giving to yourself and your mind. And it could positively affect your growth long-term if you stick with it. Speaking of that, you know, especially when you're in a community where there's a community of lay people looking up to you as an example. So, so you've taken on all of those precepts, right? 227 precepts for a Theravada monk 
and the lay people ideally have taken on five, the five base precepts. And so they're, you know, kind of looking up to you as a spiritual example or, or at least a moral example. It goes without saying that, you know, even if you don't get caught by other people, it's kind of between you and yourself. And it's not really a guilt thing, but more of yeah. what we've already talked about. And I have to say that in in the Theravada tradition, you know, Thailand and most of Southeast Asia are third world countries. And so a lot of monk, a lot of men become monks in those countries because they don't have very many other options you know it's a, it's a viable option as a career so they might not be getting into it for specifically spiritual purposes i might be so bold as to say which you know i'll go ahead and be even bolder and say that i think that's one of the reasons why they they offered me you know that they were so willing to let me become a monk in that community is because they saw I was in it for the right reasons, so to speak, because I was really into meditation and studying Buddhism and, you know, willing to take it seriously. I have yet to go down that path and actually go, go the full Monty, so to speak, and become, become a monk. <laughs> the full uh, monkey? The, the, the full monkey. Oh, boy. <laughs> the, the full Monty. Uh, oh, that. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm interested in it. Um, I, I would like to robe and become a monk um, at some point in my life. I think. Would it, you shave your eyebrows? Yeah, I think I could. I think I could do the eyebrow. It's not thing. so bad. It's yeah. it's the beard I'm I'm hesitant to let go of. Oh, of course. You're not supposed to be getting any chicks when you're a, a monk, anyways. At least in the Theravada uh, tradition. Yeah, but see, the thing <laughs> is, is the beard is permanently attached. That's, I mean, that's where you derive a lot of your power from, right? I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but it's not the beard on the outside that counts. It's the beard on the inside. It's mm. it's just like the dreads on the inside. Oh, yeah, that that's count. right. You had crazy dreads before yeah. you So actually, the people, monk, right? yeah, the people at the temple knew me when I had my dreadlocks. <laughs> and then finally, when I shaved them off, the, the teacher, the head teacher there, he's like, I've been waiting for you to do that. <laughs> It was more like he knew I was going to do it. Most of my focus in academic study of Buddhism has been more in the Zen tradition. Uh, and when you when you become a Zen monk, it, it's a it's a position for life. And I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure I want to do it for life. I think it, it's something I want to do for for a time. But may, maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll do the traditional Indian path. And once after I retire. Uh, you know, spend a couple years enjoying retirement, and then I'll become a renunciate at the end of my life. I'll get to be like 70 years old, and I'll just renounce all my worldly possessions and say, good luck, family. I, I've done my job. I've raised you all. I've you know, raised a family who has now begun raising a family. Now it's time for me to turn into my, uh, my own spiritual development and walk off into the, the sunset carrying nothing but the clothes on my back and, you know. Yeah, well, it's, it's the sunset. Yeah, we keep saying this a for life thing in those other Buddhist traditions, but it's not—it's not like they kill you if you try to leave. But you actually have to postulate for a much longer time. I kind of did postulate in my own way, like I've explained, going to the temple for years ahead of time. But in uh, in most of the you know Zen traditions and other monasteries, if you want to ordain, you have to you know, postulate for a certain number of ye months or years ahead of time, and then you have to work your way up the ranks, right? So it's like if you were to leave, you'd be foregoing all of those efforts or rank? 
For those of our listeners who do not have a master's degree in Asian studies, Will, would you explain what postulate means? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> postulate would be um, to assume a subordinated position within the ranks and prove yourself through uh, certain duties and tasks and devotion to the community, right? So it's kind of kind of like an internship, I guess you might say. I don't know. Help me out here. It sounds like you're, uh, you're climbing well, the monastic Webster's, ladder. It, it, that's yeah. exactly what it is, really. Merriam-Webster's dictionary has it as a transitive verb to demand or claim, to assume or claim as true, existent or necessary, or to depend upon or start from the postulate of. That makes no sense whatsoever. I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter <laughs> definition. Yeah, it's it's basically to 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 assume or claim as true, meaning that you 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 have oh, to uh, claim that your uh, your intentions are true. So when you postulate, it's like you have to uh, you know sit outside the door, you know, proclaiming your honest desires and uh, as your your will of of uh, you know truthiness uh, in the the Stephen Colbert sense of the term. To, to prove to them your your willingness to become a monk, and you have to sit outside the door for three days and three nights without food, shelter, or encouragement until Dyler Durden comes out and lets you into Fight Club. <laughs> and you can fight your defilements. And if it's your first time at the monastery, you have to meditate. <laughs> well, yes, well, that brings us to our real fake sponsors who are uh, sponsoring this episode of Mindfulness of Doom. This week, Mindfulness of Doom is brought to you by GameCube, Nintendo GameCube, uh, protecting Super Nintendos from cat vomit since last week. Yes, and this episode of Mindfulness of Doom also brought to you by The Beard on the Inside. It's where your real strength comes from. Yes, this week on Mindfulness of Doom is also brought to you by Meaningless Awards. Meaningless Awards. Uh, giving awards to Will for coming on the podcast for no reason other than uh, we love him. Hey, everybody gets a ribbon for trying. And this podcast also brought to you by Anti-Bullying Prevention. Anti-Bullying Prevention, bullying the right way. And lastly, this week's podcast is brought to you by Milk. Meal replacements for monks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> squirrel in the darkness <laughs> mindfulness of doom is now on patreon if you'd like to be a supporting contributor to the podcast by giving monthly to our cause you can find us at patreon.com slash mindfulness of doom and yes that's right we also have a blog if you are interested in reading more uh, than just the podcast that we make a weekly blog post you can check that out on our website, mindfulnessofdoom.com slash blog. Yes, and it turns out that our blog is getting double the readership that the podcast is, which is not surprising because Corey is an excellent writer and he spends an inordinate amount of time crafting his prose specifically for your reading eyes. Uh, yeah, actually, what I think what it is is I keep putting these links to really nerdy, obscure references that I don't think anyone will get. But maybe 10% of everybody gets at least one of the links. <laughs> and if you're interested in a different kind of reading, we're offering free lessons and insights into mindfulness through our mailing list. You can find access to our mailing list directly on the homepage of our website. Just add your first name and your email address, and you'll be receiving mail directly from us. 
If you are interested in sponsoring Mindfulness of Doom, not as a real fake sponsor, but as a real, real sponsor, yes. you can find us on our contact page at mindfulnessofdoom.com. Also, for events and appearances, we are available. Please contact us at mindfulnessofdoom.com. Yes, and one last plug for the crypto community college that Professor William Colachico is running. Will, uh, what do you have a specific URL they can find, or is it just a YouTube channel? We just started a couple weeks ago, so search YouTube for Crypto Community College. It's fresh. It's new. It's going to change the world. Will, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We'll see you next week. We invite you to like, subscribe, and rate our podcast on iTunes and wherever podcasts of real quality can be found. Have suggestions, music, or artwork for the show? Want to sponsor our podcast? Find our contact page and links to the items we talked about in this episode at www.mindfulnessofdoom.com. This podcast is recorded at the Center for Social Change in Miami, Florida. It is written, edited, and recorded by Brian Lemmerman and Corey Hardacre. Our music is by Pallet Town and can be found at soundcloud.com slash All poorly thought out opinions are ours. Nothing you hear in this podcast should be construed as professional medical advice. Go see a therapist, all of you. <laughs> a squirrel in the darkness. <laughs>